This is Bellator Colloquium, a podcast of the Bellator Society. Bellator in Latin means warrior, and a colloquium is a conversation. We at the Bellator Society are online warriors for the true, good, and beautiful, and this podcast is our conversation about all those things and so much more. Meet us here weekly at Bellator Colloquium and at bellatorsociety.com for content that will hopefully lift you, inspire you, comfort you, and make you feel a part of our Bellator Society. Good morning, Bellator Society. This is Tracy Eddy. Welcome to the podcast. I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona, and in Nashville, Tennessee, I have Fran Yeager with me. Good morning, my friend. How are you? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. We have a guest today, and we are so honored that she's sharing a little bit of her time with us this morning. And so I just want to jump right into it, if that's okay with you, Fran. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, We have Kelly Bro with us. She is from... Bro Bridge, Louisiana, (laughs) and she runs a beautiful ministry with her husband called Red Bird Ministries, Mm -hmm. and it is a grief ministry, and it's such a beautiful, um, a beautiful thing for us to talk about today because our topic all week has been, not all week, all month has been victory, and even when we're going through grief or struggles, um, and we all will go through this at some point. Um, I think our victory is in the Lord, and that is what Kelly's ministry helps families, women, men, um, helps them with, you know, finding their victory and kind of finding their 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 journey through grief um, uh, through the church. So, mm-hmm. Kelly, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so yeah. much for joining us. Oh, I'm so happy that you're here talking to us. I have to say real fast before we before we get into Kelly, you know, a, a formal introduction, um, <laughs> that Kelly and I met at a Dominican t- retreat together. It was a silent retreat, so we actually couldn't talk to each other. But I did. We, I ha- we both have a mutual friend who said to me a couple of times before, "You got to meet this girl. That she, I've met her before. You've got to meet her. She has an incredible story." And I'm like, "Okay, well, this is a silent retreat. I'm not really sure how we're supposed to do that." <laughs> um, but right at the end. And I walked up and I was like, Kelly, hi. And I was like, someone has been telling me that I need to talk to you. And immediately, in fact, I think you were actually, um, you were packing your bags to leave. And you're like, come come to my room with me. And so we just started talking. And then in the course of maybe 10 minutes, we were both in tears. We were hugging. Aww. We were friends. That We had a connection. And I think that connection is made through grief. Right. And um, I think that's something that all three of us can actually understand because we've all been through it. And just as you said, Tracy, everybody in the world will eventually do it. Like um, grief is a type of trauma. Not everyone has the same trauma and there are different levels right. of trauma. But everybody, if you're a human being and you have another human being in your life or human beings that you love, you're going to go through grief regardless. And there's a, there's, it, it's a club it's a club that nobody wants to be in, but it's a club yeah. and, and you, you meet people who have, who have been through something similar to you and there's a connection and that's what I felt with you, Kelly. Yes. And so, um, we're just so thankful that you are sharing your beautiful ministry with us here today on the podcast. And we want to know more about it because we want people who are listening to know about it because people need it. Absolutely. So, um, just can you give us maybe a little bit of um, just your backstory, how this all, how you got into the grief ministry? So I always say that I did grief wrong. <laughs> so um, 
Uh, you know, it just, I was the person who um, just, I ran, I ran, I didn't want to experience grief and I ran from everything that was hard. I stuffed my pain down, which is very common <laughs> that people um, don't really want to expose those parts of their lives. Mm-hmm. And it really wasn't um, because I was ashamed of my wounds. I was scared of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I didn't, I really, um, I suffered for a long time. I was angry. Um, and it transmitted out through all of my relationships. Um, my husband and I, you know, because we didn't know what to do with this grief, we, you know, we would argue. I was always crying. I thought I was going crazy because I was in this rowboat by myself is what I thought. And because of my isolation, it just made the the lies that I believed um, my truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I actually went to a Curcio years later, which I'll share a little bit about my conversion, um, that I actually saw other people's pain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. For a long time, all I saw was myself. So it's hard to, it's hard to, to, to go through and to experience healing when um, it's, it's only focused on self. It's like a straitjacket. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It really is. Can we go back a little bit and talk about what you were grieving or who you were grieving? Yes. So in 2005, my husband and I found out we were pregnant for twins. And um, it was uneventful until about 20 weeks. Mm-hmm. And um, we went into our, for an ultrasound. And our doctor told us that our daughter had um, markers for a congenital defect. Um, 22 weeks, I started contracting 26 weeks. I lost my mucus plug. And at 28 weeks, I went into labor. I didn't know at the time while I was at home that my placenta, my placenta was abrupt, abrupting. Mm -hmm. And, um, I went into the hospital. I was already dilating. They were trying to stop the, um, labor, but then I started bleeding. And so they rushed me into the delivery room. I was 25 years old. Um, they wouldn't let Ryan in, which was so scary because he's always been my safe place. Mm. And um, to do the spinal block and set me up to prepare me for surgery. And I did like I didn't never had a child before. Um, so as they were laying me across the table, I didn't I, like I didn't know what was going on. And in a in a C-section, they take your arms and they stretch them out and they mm. buckle them in the shape of a cross. And so I look back now and it was like I was laying down my life for my babies. But at the time, I didn't know um, what was going on. Mm. Um, The next morning, I woke up with four doctors in my room to tell me that my son, they thought my son had trisomy 21, which is Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I was even more confused because they told me that my daughter had these markers and that my son was healthy while I was mm-hmm. pregnant. But this morning, they were telling me that my son had Downs and my daughter did not. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know what to think. Um, I was kind of shocked because, you know, there's lots of women who have gone in for ultrasounds and the doctors have been incorrect. Um, but there was no way that they could um, get the, the opposite baby. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is 
um, whenever you're pregnant for twins, if you have a boy and a girl, they're always fraternal. Mm-hmm. You can't mess it up. You can't mess up boy <laughs> parts. And you can't mess up girl parts. There are and other so, markers. <laughs> there's other markers, yeah. So I was so confused. And I, yeah. it, 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 I was in shock. Um, my body was, um, of course, recovering from a C-section. I was um, on the verge of having to have a blood transfusion from the placental abruption. So I was in and out of consciousness, I think, for several days. Mm-hmm. Um, on day 10, it was confirmed. And on day 13, we found out he had an infection. And on day 15, he passed away. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time that I actually understood what darkness was. Yeah. yeah. And um, I could, it really... I. Um, I really didn't have time to mourn his loss because mm-hmm. they were born so early. Emma was, you know, on life support, and I had to switch my focus. The day that we buried him, we found out that Emma had an infection. And um, two weeks later, she was flown to Fort Worth in Texas at Cook's Children's, where she had an eight-hour cardiovascular surgery from the infection. Um and she came home 12 weeks later on oxygen and um, 10 different medications that I had to administer, which <sighs> left me um, with severe anxiety because mm-hmm. I was scared that she would die on my watch. And yep. every four hours I was having to make sure that, you know, um, I was reading the med- medicine, mm-hmm. the regimen right and the dose. and. Doing everything. You weren't just her mama. You were her nurse. Mm -hmm. I was her nurse. So at eight, twelve, and four, in the during the day and at night, I was having to um, give her medicine. So it was, it was emotional, very emotional. And and truthfully, it doesn't sound like you had time to heal, really. You know, from your grief. So, uh, from an outsider's perspective, I would say that, you know, at some point, there's times in your life where you have to just survive. Mm You know, and, and whether you do it well or not, survival means you've done it well, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so I'm sorry, keep going. Yeah. So, um, everything was kind of, um, I guess just like just spiraling. Um, my husband recognized right away that something was happening in my heart and, um, he, uh, his sister works for OB. And so he called his sister and he's like, I think, I think Kelly needs some medicine. So they gave me some anxiety medicine to help me to, um, to function. Cause I was mm-hmm. throwing up. Um, I was throwing up all the time and I, I lost like 11 pounds that first week. And, um, so they gave me some, I, I, I was, uh, given Zoloff and, um, lovingly suggested that I go to therapy, which I was not happy about. <laughs> and when do you have time for that? Yeah. Yeah. I was not happy about mm-hmm. that at all. And so I went because mm-hmm. my husband asked me to. Yeah. And um, with a big, you know, frown on my face. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I waited um, for her to give me, she had to give me this test because my mother had bipolar. And so mm-hmm. I was scared that my grief had triggered this. And mm-hmm. I didn't share, um, you know, all my crazy thoughts with everyone that was in my circle for fear that people would think that I had that too. 
And so I I did share that with her. And um, so she gave me this test where she asked me a bunch of questions and I had to like do a handwritten test. And several weeks later, she comes back with, you know, all the results. And she's like, Kelly, you don't have bipolar. Um, You're just grieving. And I looked at her bluntly and I told her, then you can't help me. Mm. because you have not lost a child you Mm. do not understand what this is like so you can't help me and I never went back um which I think because of what I experienced um this that part just about you know walking authentically with someone um was really like how the ministry came about um so that's just a little side note because I'm getting off topic. Um, I feel like so this I, is all on topic, though, because yeah. this is what everybody experiences in grief. You think you're crazy. You think yeah. like you need that <laughs> confirmation. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is so, I mean, edifying for people who have done this, too, because we, we um, I think Tracy and I both have also had those thoughts. You know, the mm-hmm. people who are close to us who have lost, you know, people in their lives have had those thoughts. And until mm-hmm. you say it out loud, you do think that you're the only one who has the yeah. thought. So I think it's totally on point. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. But you're yeah, welcome. please. Yeah, there's even science that proves exactly what you're saying, where it's, I think is the... I always say the word wrong, somatic part of the brain, mm. where that processes grief. Um, it doesn't actually that it doesn't actually um, heal until you speak it out loud. Mm. So, that's, um, so okay. So going back to after we went to after I went to therapy, um, just that confirmation to me though that I wasn't going crazy, that what I was experiencing was normal. Um, you know, a normal reaction to grief, it gave me some hope. Um, Mm -hmm. So everything was, you know, everything was going good. At about nine months old, Emma stopped um, having to wear the oxygen during the day and only at night. So we, um, we scheduled her baptism Mm. um, because her, her instructions when we took her home is that we couldn't take her anywhere. Um, Yeah. It was flu and RSV season. And so, some of our family members had to see her through our glass window in our living room because mm. they couldn't come inside the house. Um, so she was baptized on September 10th on, of 2006, and um, things were kind of going smooth until she was about a year and a half old. And we realized that the surgery that she had at five weeks old had a complication. Um, um, so just a little understanding of what that was her cardiovascular surgery um, that she had was to repair three aneurysms that the infection had caused so she had one on her descending aorta one on her right iliac and one on her left renal uh, artery going into the left kidney the right iliac had clotted off after surgery and so it had damaged her growth plate so at a year and a half we um we were told that the damage to the growth plate was significant and that um, there was only one of two options, that she'd either have to have uh, a right amputation of her foot um, or she would have to have a series of limb lengthening surgeries. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, I couldn't, I could not do the amputation. That was, I, I just mm-hmm. could not, I couldn't come to terms with that. Um, so we did find a doctor who, um, would do the surgery on her and she was a candidate for it 
but she could she had to do the surgery during the biggest parts of her her growth um which was three and a half years old Mm -hmm. so we still had like about two years before she could actually do it Um, during that time um we had a surprise pregnancy um which and i say surprise because um we were preparing for this huge surgery that where Ryan and I would have to uproot our lives and move um, 14 hours away from home. And I'd, we'd have to live there first. Well, I would have to live there um, while he worked back home um, with, with Emma for six months. And so I was kind of, I was shocked when I got pregnant for Estelle. And it, of course, I was happy that we were having a baby, but I, I really shamed myself um, because I felt like I was irresponsible. It was the wrong, wrong time to conceive a child. Um, little did I know <laughs> at the time how much light she brought, um, yeah. you know, to our life. But Oh, God's plans are so much better than ours. Yeah. Yeah. But that just that feeling like, yeah. how am I going to care for an infant mm-hmm. 14 hours away from home with a daughter in a wheelchair? It just, it just seems so much for mm-hmm. one person to be able to handle at one time. Um, so we delivered a sale January 6th of 2009, and, um, which is a Feast of the Epiphany. And her name is Stella, means Stella Maris, so God's plans are always perfect. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And um, on July 13th on our, of 2009, on our seventh wedding anniversary, we packed up the car and headed for West Palm Beach, Florida, where uh, Emma was going to undergo this surgery. And we got there, and we we actually um, got our apartment settled. We took the girls to Walt Disney World, came back a week later um, for her surgery. It was uh, on July 24th, and she went through the, um, I think it was like four or five-hour surgery, and came out fine. Later that night, she started having febrile seizures, and things quickly went downhill. Within a week, we were airmedded to Miami Children's, where she was put on ECMO with a confirmed H1N1 diagnosis, oh. which is the swine flu. And um, because she was preemie previously, um, her body um, struggled to fight it. Mm-hmm. So she lived for seven weeks with oh. this, this oh. diagnosis. And... Three years after she was baptized, the same exact day she died, <sighs> September tenth, two thousand six. Oh my goodness, Kelly, this story is unbelievable. This cross—I mean, just starting it with your experience in the delivery room, in the cruciform, and then hearing this—is just like it's so. I mean, thank you for yes. telling it to us. Thank you for saying it and for sharing it because it's it's unbelievable, really, the the suffering that you have endured in you know in your motherhood, and it didn't stop there. I know it didn't stop there. Yeah. I know that's not the it's not the end of the story. Um, it's yeah. still not the end of the story, but um, no, the suffering continued. Absolutely, I didn't even realize the day that it happened that. It was her baptism day. It was we were preparing like her books for the funeral, and one of my friends said, "Kelly, she died on her baptism date," 
And then I connected the dot that so did Talon because his was an emergency. I was like, how did, (laughs) how did it happen? But of course it was God just, you know, showing his himself in that, that darkness. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's hard to see when you're in that. Yeah. I only, I only understand it now, years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it didn't, it, it didn't stop there. Um, in 2012, I got pregnant again, excited. And at 11 weeks, um, we went in for an ultrasound, and our baby's had, heart had stopped. Mm-hmm. And so I had to have another, um, another had another loss. Uh, we had it to do a DNC because I did not, I uh, couldn't pass the baby on my own, which um, I always, you know, share with, you know, mothers who experience miscarriage, um, who they feel so unworthy to come to our ministry. And yeah. it, re- it really, it hurts my heart because there's no closure. Like, you know, whenever you birth a baby, either stillborn or alive, Mm-hmm. When a child dies, you have a funeral. For mothers of miscarriage, there is there's nothing. There's no closure. There's there's no passage through the church, and that it really that hurts my heart. Yeah. You know. So Kelly, your story is so devastatingly beautiful at the same time because. It, it shows kind of God's hand in, in your life and how I think he's prepared you, obviously, to do the work that you're doing, to do this ministry that you're doing, and how you've um, helped so many families and how you're going to continue to help so many families. But it's almost like he, he gave you the crosses, um, I think, so you could be, you know, his hands and feet. And I think all three of us are sitting here in tears. <laughs> Because grief never goes away. Yeah. You yeah. know, um, y- you can heal from it. Mm-hmm. You can totally heal from it. But but for those of us, and again, we're all going to face this at some point, some of us more so than others. But if you've gone through grief and you feel like you've healed from grief, sometimes it just takes a song or a conversation <laughs> or, you know, a homily or, or whatever the case may be to kind of bring it back and bring back those flood of emotions. But I think we're crying from a place of probably for me, I'm crying from a place of peace mm-hmm. and seeing your story is beautiful instead of from a darkness and despair, which I think is what you are able to show families. Like you can, you can get to this yeah. point, you know, you can heal. It doesn't mean you won't, cry <laughs> all the time. No, I'm teasing not all the time. It doesn't mean you're not going to cry. It doesn't take the emotion out, but it, it, it heals your heart and your soul and um, gives you hope for, you know, um, eternity to see your, your children again in eternity, you know, in, in their fullness. Yeah, and I'll say, too, that Kelly is a mystic. I have read your writing um, on just your reflections on um, grief and your children, and you recently wrote a piece on your blog uh, that you titled Holy Triggers. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about, Tracy, that you, yeah. know, you don't ever expect when those waves hit you or when the tsunami hits you. You, you described um, when you were at Mass and saw that little girl in front of you that looked just like Emma Grace. And, um, and you and I, when we talked on the telephone, recently kind of talked about those triggers and how you don't expect them. You're just going through your day thinking it's a fine day and then it hits you and you didn't, you didn't know that it was going to 
ruin your day a bit. But then, but then, and this is where your mysticism is so beautiful. You you move beyond that hurt eventually. Like you do have to sit with it. Like you can't run away from it. You do have to sit with it and experience the sadness in the day um, or in the days that, that you have it. But then um, you said in your piece, I tried to envision a huge chalice that was catching my tears at that moment and being brought to the altar. And, oh, that's that's what that's our grief. Th- that's what our tears are for. They're an offering. They're 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 in communion with the suffering of Jesus and and you know having that very Catholic perspective that you that you worked towards because it didn't start there, right? Like you you were Catholic, but you, you even mentioned that there was there was a a conversion in the process. You weren't you weren't just grieving, but you, Jesus was converting you as well. Yeah, so we have a huge um, Catholic community. Um, I, I always say it wrong, but I think it's like Althea. Al, Al, Al Correct me if I'm wrong. How do you say Altea. it? We talked about this earlier. Is it Althea? <laughs> oh I don't know. They Nobody voted. knows how to say it, but we all know what it is. <laughs> so they voted Lafayette, Louisiana, the number one most Catholic place in the country. Oh, I believe and- that. That's my motherland. <laughs> That's your motherland, yeah. And so it's like everyone in Lafayette, and I live six minutes from Lafayette, but everyone is Catholic, but we're Catholic by culture. We're not Catholic by conviction. And through my grief, I understood what that meant because although I was, um, you know, if you'd ask me if I'm Christian, if I'm Catholic, well, of course, but I had never experienced the um, the divine healing and the person of Christ mm. until I made my Crucio in 2017. And um, it was a, really a series of events that happened. Um, one of my best friends, um, her and her daughter was coming home from a Carrie Underwood concert and a drunk driver hit him head on. Oh. And her daughter, um, who was only born six weeks after, I mean, six weeks before the twins, she was 10 at the time, um, she died. Oh and it was the first time that I knew someone that close to me that had lost a child. And it just, it, it, it just, I went back to the beginning. I, I could not stop thinking about what she was experiencing in that moment. And, you know, what they were having to do, they were going to the funeral home and then, you know, they were going to have to put all this stuff together. And it's like, you can't just sit still in those moments. Like I could not stay in my house thinking about that. I had to go to her. Mm -hmm. And there was this, I see it now, but at the time I didn't understand it, but it was so clear that it was the visitation, how, Mm -hmm. you know, Mary and Elizabeth, they were in the same, they were both pregnant and they just had to be with each other, you know, through whatever they were going through, through that motherhood. And that's what I did. I went to Misty side and, um, I always tell her this and she, she, she always corrects me. I tell her, you know, I thought that I was going to go and help you, but you actually helped me. And she giggles that, you know, I helped her the most, but it, that wasn't the truth because she had a relationship with Christ and I didn't, mm-hmm. um, because of all my pain. And um, the day that she was supposed to bury, well, the day she buried Isley, she was supposed to leave for her to go make her Crucio. And um, 
where I ran, she stayed at the foot of the cross and she imitated Mary to me. And so when she asked me um, to, to go to make mine, um, I, I didn't feel judged by her because she had experienced what I experienced. Everyone in the past who had ever asked me to do something like this or, you know, to go back into my faith or pray, like really all I wanted to do was punch them because they were like throwing <laughs> little band-aids at you. Yeah. Well, they were trying to fix me was, yeah, the, yeah. was what I saw. And like, uh, all I kept thinking was, you don't know what you're talking about. You have no understanding. Yeah. You, don't, you do not know this pain. And I pray every day no one knows this pain um, because that would mean that you would have to know what it, it's like to lose a child. Um, so you felt like she had credibility and you're willing to, to go with her and take her advice and listen yes. to what she had to say. Yes, exactly. Which is exactly what you needed. At the, That's you know. right. I needed someone who understood and could lead me to the light. Um, because I hadn't made my confirmation, I gave her that excuse. I have to make my confirmation first. I can't go make my Crisillo. <laughs> and then one of my other friends uh, said, that's not true. I made my Crisillo without making my confirmation. But she said, how about we do our CIA together to make our confirmation? So, like, how can I argue with all my best friends <laughs> telling me all this? Um, so I joined RCIA in 2016 um, made my confirmation in February of 2017, and I left for Curcio on the one-year anniversary of Isley's death mm-hmm. oh, um, in awesome. April of 2017. And, Can you uh, tell us a little bit about, for, for our listeners who don't know like what Curcio is, I feel like sometimes we use terms that we are very familiar yeah. with. I remember when my parents have talked about it when they went on Curcio, and, um, and my daughter just got back from a couple weeks ago from her Kairos receipt. Uh, retreat, which is basically Curcio, but for teens. Um, but can you tell us a little bit um, about Curcio, just so um, our listeners maybe have a better idea of what you're, what you're, where you're going? <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So Curcio is never considered a retreat because it's actually a three-day walk with the Holy Spirit. And so you go, yeah, you go on a... Um, Kairos was considered a retreat. <laughs> it's not a retreat. Okay, gotcha. Crecio in Spanish means short course. And so it's like uh-huh. you learn your catechism in a three-day walk with, with the Holy Spirit. So it starts uh-huh. on a Thursday, ends on a Sunday. And um, the the method of Crecio is just so... Um, there is so intentional and I understood, um, at each, at each point that, like God gave me this piece to this puzzle, Mm. but not until Sunday could I see what it looked like. And, um, I had, I had built so many walls around my heart to protect it that I was so closed off to going to all these places. And, um, I was able to do that on that weekend. And so that's, you know, when I was able to expose my wounds and um, bring them to the foot of the cross. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So beautiful. And, and so that's when you, that's when you kind of moved from that, that cultural Catholicism to really a convicted Catholicism and an active faith that you had not experienced before. And I do want to like circle back a little bit, like that's very common in, 
you know, heavily dense Catholic places, you know, geographically, because everyone's Catholic. And so you do kind of like put off sacraments or because you don't like I'm Catholic. I don't really need that. Like, what is it for? Mm-hmm. I don't really understand. We're not talking about it. We're just, you know, we're all going to mass. We'll, you know, it. They're, they're, you don't you, have to fight for it. When, when you exactly. Live yes. No, yeah, that's when you a, live in a secular world. You have to really like have your guard up and really own it. A hundred percent. That's exactly it. So I think what you're describing is you finally realized I, I do have to own this and I have to fight for it. And when you took that step into what was darkness, probably like you did. I mean, it was towards the light, but you kind of got to go through into something you can't see before you can actually get to the light. Like you didn't know what you were going to go into, and but you did it. That I mean, that act of faith was so beautiful and, um, and an act of hope because, you know, given what you had been through up to up to that point like how could you have even anticipated it was going to get better so i mean what a beautiful act of hope you had um you made um and just going to curcio and going through rcia um so at this point in your story you are now an active catholic and you are you know frequenting the sacraments i i mm-hmm. think at this point um how, how did your faith play into it because i know we've talked about um and you mentioned a little bit before like the catholic church could do a way better job of accompanying the grieving um but mm-hmm. what were the things that we do well as catholics that helped you through that time yeah so um for a while after Curcio, like I identified my healing from my Curcio weekend, but it really was, you know, the start of it. Um, when I joined RCIA, I had to make a face to face confession mm-hmm. and I had never done that before. So <laughs> I, I had to do this like huge examination of conscious. I went to father with like, I think it was like two pages front and back. And at the end, um, <laughs> I said, that's all I got. <laughs> and <laughs> it had been like an hour. And um, it was basically every sin my whole entire life. Wow. Um, then I had confirmation. And then I went to Crescia, which is, you know, filled with, um, with the sacraments. Mm-hmm. And so when, when, I con- like when I was looking back um, at what happened through my conversion, I realized that um, although Crescia was f- filled with uh, an opportunity to heal. It was actually the sacraments that mm-hmm. healed me. Um, and not just what I think a lot of people don't understand. Yes, there's grace that is poured out into the sacraments, but when you're in sanctifying grace, when you receive sacraments and sanctifying grace, that's whenever this divine healing happens. And mm-hmm. that is what I was missing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, even the sacrament I've... of my marriage. I've seen that even just in like trauma. I mean, we're, our family is involved in, um, um, you know, adoption as part of our story and, you know, kids from hard places, you see some of them really struggling, even though they're maybe going to church with their family, they're going to Bible study, they're involved in their youth group, they're still struggling. But then you see the kids who, who have, like you said, the sanctifying grace and it, it is, powerful Mm -hmm. I mean the Mm -hmm. the graces are real and they're true and I mean I saw it with my own kids um Mm -hmm. the you know once they were able to to go to confession and to it's just like it's a weight it is a weight that is literally I I envision angels just taking it you know and dumping it like (laughs) in a river somewhere um and it's freeing you know it's it frees your soul 
Yeah, I felt shackled to my grief, and it's like yeah. the sacraments, it, it really set me free. There was definitely a change. My husband noticed it, um, so later he went to make his Crisio. Uh, so oh, it definitely... So can but, you tell us a little bit, so so you've, you've gone through, you know, just unspeakable grief and tragedy, and you've, you've started the healing process, you've come back to the church, and then at what point did you start your Redbird ministry, and, and how, what are you doing now? <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so let's see, in April of 2017 is when I made my Crisio, that August, Ryan went to the man-to-man conference uh, in Lafayette at Fatima, and um, he was in confession. He hadn't been to confession in 15 years, mm-hmm. and after absolution, the priest stopped him and gave him his phone number, his cell phone. It wasn't our parish priest. It was just a visiting priest from another parish, and um, he told Ryan, he said, I would love for you and your wife to come and share y'all testimony. He said, "Call, have her call me. And so he gives uh, Ryan his uh, the slip of paper, and get, he comes home, and I was like, oh, that's so cool. You know, it seems like a great idea. And then fear um, had a way with me. And yeah. so it took me about seven months for me to, t- to call the priest back. And um, I, I was, I had came to this mountaintop experience, and I always describe it um, as like, this transfiguration, you know, you climb, I, it, I powered through climbing that mountain and I had gotten to, to me, what felt like the climax in my healing, like once and done kind of thing. You're good. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. So I'm sit, I was sitting on this mountaintop, you know, experiencing like Jesus, you know, dazzling in front of me. And I wanted to stay there in comfort because that felt good. It was the first time that it felt, I felt no anxiety, no depression. I just, I felt so free. You were the apostle who wanted to build the tent and just stay there. (laughs) Exactly. Can't say I blame you. (laughs) And Jesus was kicking me off the mountain. (laughs) That's right. Um, And so I said no at the beginning and those through those seven months, um, everywhere I went, I met someone who had lost a child mm-hmm. where I never happened before. And, um, you always felt alone, right? Before I always you felt, always felt alone. alone. And so all these, you... exactly. All these people were coming into my path and I would, I just remember one day telling them, okay, I get it. Like I understand what you're asking me. Call him back. Um, so I called him back and, um, during this, during these seven months, some some incredible things happened besides meeting all these women. One of my friends encouraged me to pick up my book that I was writing and to finish it where I was stopped before because God wasn't finished with me yet. Mm -hmm. Um, I was encouraged to do that and I had met another uh, girl from St. Philip in Franklin, um, Susan Skinner and she on, on a Dominican retreat and (laughs) she asked Ron and I to go to do a talk as well. And I was like, okay, how did it, like, within, like, not, like, two months, two people asked Ryan and I to come share our story. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought that I didn't have anything to say because, like I was telling you, I did everything wrong. I was, like, the opposite of what everybody should do. Um, but, you know, now I understand, like, what I went through is is what most people 
will never ever say because they're ashamed at how they feel. Um, and and just and through prayer, uh, Jesus gave me this vision one day. I was you know just just really down on myself, like shaming myself, like you know everybody's like pick up your cross, carry it, and I'm like I don't even want to look at it. I don't want to. I don't want. I, I don't want to pick it up. You know, I, I don't want to offer it up. I don't want to pick it up. I don't want to do any. I don't even want to look at it. Um, and through prayer, just like telling God, like all of this, um, I saw Jesus with his cross and he handed it to me. And he said, even I needed help carrying my cross. And how did you ever think that you could do it on your own? And I was <laughs> like, oh gosh. So I was putting so much emphasis on what I was able to do by myself mm-hmm. that there was that there was a reason why I could not right. pick it up. It's because I needed this community of of people. Mm-hmm. So I went through the talk <laughs> at both places, and um, one of the things that Father Brady shared with me is he was trying to get together a support group. Um, and he just couldn't make it work. And he said, Kelly, I just think there's something more that I can't offer to these families. He said, I've never had a child. I don't know what it's like to lose a child. He said, although I can love them through their loss, I cannot journey with them through their loss. Mm-hmm. And that was what hit me, is that I had been blaming our church. I had been mad at our priests. <laughs> and... <laughs> And Jesus told me, you need to go do it. You yeah. need to go and do this because they can't journey through loss because they don't understand it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you, you are uniquely qualified for this. And so you, so Redbird Ministries offers grief. Um, what, what is it? Is it okay. counseling? Is it um, just support? Do you, do you do retreats? How, how does it work? And, um, and just can you share a few of the fruits of, of your ministry? Absolutely. So um, Redbird is a Catholic grief support ministry. Um, we started with just serving um, couples of loss. And we've, over the last two years, we've kind of redefined uh, what that actually looks like because um, our minds were open to the great need of the church. Um, there's no single Catholic um, ministry in the church that provides resources that um, we say we heal the mind, the body, and the soul. Um, for me, all these support groups that um, are offered, even in our area, I've, I've gone to one. They focus emotionally and psychologically, but they do not focus on the soul. And not until my soul was healed was my psychological and emotional healed. Um, so we we walk through grief um with families. Um, I wrote the program that I wrote was on the passion of the cross. So it starts with the agony in the garden and goes all the way through. Um, but we do monthly support groups, um, for moms and dads. Um, in the next couple of months, we're developing our grandparent support group. So we'll start with that. Um, we do couples workshops twice a year. Um, where other couples share their stories and we have spiritual directors at every workshop and um, counselors and um, and priests and then once a year we do a grieving dad's retreat and a grieving mom's retreat 
and those are powerful. Um, our last retreat, we had 26 moms, um, three Protestant. They, three of them were Protestant. Um, so we even serve, you know, all denominations, of course. Um, and we had several, everyone went to confession, but several of them had not been to confession in 10 to 20 years, mm-hmm. um, which was profound to, to, to watch their healing come forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're, and you're ministering to women um, who, and men, parents, couples who have lost children through, from miscarriage through adulthood. Right. That, yes. that it's not just, you know, small children because it's, it's a different kind of loss, but it's still the loss of a child, whether it's a, in, through miscarriage or, you know, at 30 years old. Um, these are still parents who have lost children and that's not the right order. You know, something is right. out of order there and you're serving these people who feel so out of order and, you know, don't know mm-hmm. what to do um, with that kind of loss. And I think that that is so, so beautiful, just the wide um, variety of of people of, of broken hearts that you are helping mend, um, through your ministry. And, um, and I love too, that when we were chit chatting earlier about this, about just kind of talking, you had three very specific kind of steps that you take in the ministry. Um, you, you said that it was identify, grow and gather. And can you just take us through those three steps and let us just kind of show us how and how you are working out this methodology and your, through your ministry? Yeah. So the t- the title of the talk, I think, or the podcast that we talked about was victory and grief. Yeah. And so when Fran first um, shared that with me, like the first thing that I thought of is our priest. I know not all priests do it, but our priest, he holds up the Eucharist um, when he breaks it in two and he crisscrosses it in the shape of a V. And so I asked him one day, cause I didn't, I was like, father, why do you do that? Because not all of them do it. And he said that whenever he holds it up, um, it shows the fractured host to show that Jesus body, Jesus's body was broken but the shape of the V symbolizes the victory that Christ had over death. Oh. So we don't have to, we don't have to conquer death. He's already done right. it for us. Mm-hmm. Right. He's, mm-hmm. he's already won. And then um, for I identify for identify, um, there's something powerful whenever we in the, in in naming things. So what I what I found was. When I could identify what was going, what was going on with me, like when I was like, okay, that happened because of this, and this happened because of that. When I could start naming these emotions and what was going on, that there was so much power. Um, but being able to also to identify with others, mm-hmm. um, and walking with them authentically, um, like Saint Damon of Malachi. After learning that he had leprosy, he gave his first homily with the other lepers, and he said, my fellow lepers. Mm -hmm. So being open and vulnerable with our families helps our families to be open with us and in turn to Christ. Yeah. So that's when they're open to the healing powers of the sacraments. And I love also um, in one of your blog pieces, I think it was titled Being Led, um, you said social media has its good and bad parts, but for grieving families, it's allowed others to connect with other grieving families. And I think that's part of that identify 
um, step. You know, like you can't necessarily talk to your neighbor or the person sitting next to you in the pew. So how do you find those people with whom to identify? You know, again, you're so right. Like there's ugliness online. There's ugliness on the internet. We know that. But like, this is one of the things that is good that, that you can reach these people who are hiding and not hiding in their homes, or maybe they are, you know, you said you were trying to hide from it. So we were hiding. (laughs) So, but, but if you're there, how else would you reach them? You know, how else would you find them if it, if it were not through these, you know, online support groups and, and reaching out through websites and just doing a Google search for Catholic grief? I mean, like, I hope Redbird becomes like the number one, you know, <laughs> offering that Google gives us because, oh, my goodness, what you have gone through and what you are offering is is life changing not just for you, but I can also see for people um, who, who, who find you. So I'm, I'm so very, very thankful that you're sharing this with us. So your next step was w- once you have that, that sense of identity or identifying other people who share that identity as a grieving person, um, your next step was grow. Yeah. So um, when I lost Talon and Emma, I was angry at God. And it was the first time that I had questioned if God had really loved me. And if he was good, because what I was feeling didn't feel good, nor like love. And I asked a lot of questions. um, And grief allows us and really like just convicts us really Mm -hmm. to to ask. I mean, our our biggest question is why. Um, But there's also so much that we don't know. And whenever things, whenever life is just cruising, we have no reason to go and search for these answers. Um, That's saying that when we're when we're green, we're growing. So it's an opportunity that that allows us to continue to bring it to the foot of the cross and how we grow spiritually each time our hearts are longing for our loved ones. When we bring it to him is when we can actually grow closer to him because in our suffering, we, um, we can unite that to the cross. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, I think it was, I think it was Elizabeth of the Trinity, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, who said something that along the lines of like, it's during those hard times, those times where you just feel like this incredible void, uh, that, our job then or, or our, our opportunity is to think about how God is enlarging the capacity of our soul to receive him, you know, to grow our hearts, to grow our souls um, so that, you know, it, it's almost as if he's making through our suffering, he's making our hearts infinite in a way that we can receive his infinite love. You know, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And so I think that felt, I think, I feel like that it flows very well with your um, this this step of growth that you know you have to grow in grief and also grow together to receive yeah. God's love. It's well, ex- like you said, oh, sorry. It's exactly what he did to Mary when he withdrew himself from her. Her mm-hmm. heart had to expand to endure what was about to happen. That <sighs> always struck me. Yeah. 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 I was just thinking it, it, the image of you saying you felt like you were on the mountaintop and you were kind of finished. Um, you know, the, the Lord clearly was not finished with you. He was like, I'm just getting started. You are, you are, you are in a place where you can, you know, really be a service to others now. And so, um, I think he's, his, his desire for your growth has been something probably looking back that you never imagined you would, would be at this place, you know, obviously, um, but he's, his plans are always, are always better. 
Um, yes. and his, and his victory is like you said, death has been won. So you can, you can lay that at his feet. Exactly. Where I was hiding from people cause I didn't want them to watch me cry in public. Now I'm doing that openly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so and we're we're, do, we're happy to do it with you too. We are, and that's that's actually the next step. That's your last step that mm-hmm. you offered us is the gather. Yeah. So um, when I made Crisio, when I saw other grieving moms there, because there were, it was the first time that I saw someone else's pain. Um, I was unable to do that before. Um, so me became we and us. It was in this experience that I had the strength and the grace to truly die to myself and desire to help others who were grieving the same loss. Mm-hmm. Each time that we, we meet in these group settings, um, we are given the opportunity um, to heal. And, but also there is um, our pain that's revisited. The beautiful thing about it is all these organic relationships are happening as we gather and you know, we continue to do this, and I always joke, like, this is so painful, but the friendships that we've made, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. we help each other to carry these crosses, and yeah. we see the fruits of it, of just this these beautiful relationships and these beautiful friendships, um, and the weight that is being lifted off of us each and every time that we experience um, these mm-hmm. moments of healing together. Well, and Kelly, last time we talked, um, we were talking about how grief and, and this just the, the experience of loss is like um, is like a, a, a pair of glasses that you never really wanted to get. But now that you have it, you can actually see the crosses that other people are carrying that are invisible to the rest of the world because nobody nobody feels you, just as you said, like, you don't want to cry in front of everybody, you know, you don't want to show that to everybody. But when you know that someone has gone through a similar grief experience, you know what that feels like, and you know what they're swallowing down. And you might not know all their triggers, but you do become a little bit more sensitive to to things that you say or and, and not that everyone should be walking on eggshells and that's not what I mean, but like you do have the opportunity when you're walking with someone who has been through a similar grief experience to walk in a sensitivity that you would not have otherwise. And that is such a bond. It is such a bond. Again, it's a club you never want to be in, but it's such a bond. Exactly. Yeah. I found that, you know, what we're forced to do a lot of the times is to dance around everybody else's feelings mm-hmm. when in actuality, I think a lot of the times people should, you know, out of compassion, should be kind of dancing around ours. And not to say that, like you said, walking around on eggshells, but it, it's so hard in those first, you know, right when, right when you lose someone, it's so hard to do the simplest things. And, yes. I, and I think that people should just, just be aware, you know, of when just be aware that mm-hmm. what they're going through it's it's so heavy that they 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 just need some grace they need some mercy um and we should just give it to them i think absolutely and it's so crazy like that just as you said the tiniest little things like be, or like 
mountains you can't even climb. And I'm talking like getting your clothes on for the day, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like going yes. to the grocery store, like these little tiny things that are just normal for everyday life for normal for people who are who haven't had that experience. They're, they're obstacles that are just almost insurmountable. And so you do have those you almost want someone to like cheer for you when you made dinner. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then on the other side of it, what's super crazy is like the hardest things in the world that you can imagine. You're like, that doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. And it's such a weird, it's a weird place to be. Yeah. It's a weird perspective. And you only know that having gone through it yourself. And so you appreciate when there's another person who's there and you're like, I know this is weird. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. And just love each other through that weirdness. <laughs> exactly. Well, I th- thank you for loving us and loving people yeah. who are grieving enough to share your story and to start this ministry, which I know in, in and of itself is, <laughs> it, I won't say it's a cross, but I mean, it's an obstacle. There are obstacles yeah. to, to getting where you're going and, mm-hmm. and they're all, there always are because when you're doing something beautiful and good, there are forces out there who don't want yeah. you to do what is beautiful yes. and good. And, um, and so we just want to pray for you um, in this process and find out ways that we can help you. But before we, I would like to do like a little wrap up of how we can get to know more about Redbird Ministry, but we always end our podcasts with um, last little bits, which are just things that were things that are on our minds or on our hearts that we want to share with people. And um, I don't know if you have one. If you don't have one, Kelly, I've got one for you. Um, but uh, Tracy, would you like to go first? Do you have a last little bit today? Sure. And Kelly, just so you know, this is not it doesn't have to be profound because what I'm going to say is not profound. Um, it literally is like something in the back of my head or whatever. And the I have two things, and they're, they pertain to you, Kelly. One is your last name is Bro, and I have wanted to ask, and you live in Bro Bridge. Do you, like, own the town, or what's the story? I'm just married to the owner. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no, so my husband's Is this just like, a weird coincidence? Yeah, or? no. My husband's great, 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 great grandmother, or some, how many ever greats, um, actually founded the town, Scholastic okay. Bro. Yeah, so she Hot founded dog. the town. Yeah, so the reason why it was called Bro's Bridge is because her, uh, she was married to um, Furman Bro's son. I can't, I don't remember his name right now, but he built the first bridge over the Bayou Tesh, and it was a footbridge. Um, so Amazing. it connected the two sides of the, the city. And, you know, everything in the world is always uh, has to do with our faith. Um, yeah. It was so that people could get across to go to church. That's amazing. Yeah. That so, is a great legacy. I love Louisiana. Yeah. <laughs> that is a good legacy. Okay, my second thing that pertains to Kelly is anywhere I go, especially because I don't live in my home state anymore, I always get asked about my accent. This is the first time I think we've had a guest on whose accent is really a lot stronger than mine. And so I love it. I've loved hearing you talk because I do miss, I'm from South Arkansas. So like right on the Louisiana border. So we had a lot of, um, a lot of influence. A lot of people work for different companies that would maybe come out of New Orleans and, and come up to um, Arkansas. And so your accent just makes me feel kind of homey. So thank you for, thank you for, um, and, and I don't hear a lot of people's accents, really. I just, I don't hear my accent, really. But <laughs> yours, I hear. <laughs> so it's been That's such awesome. a treat to talk to you. 
And I'm loving it. I'm loving it like candy. It's one of my favorite things in the world to hear a Cajun accent. So I'm happy to to hear it too. All my aunts and uncles, mom, my parents are all from South Louisiana. Um, both are from South Louisiana. All my cousins are there. In fact, I think we're like the only ones of our family who have uh, left town from like Crowley and Lafayette and Lake Charles and <laughs> <laughs> Lake Arthur. And, you know, um, we uh, stay. And, yeah, <laughs> you do stay. Yeah, I have one aunt who's constantly like, you know, Lafayette is the best town in the world. I don't know why mm-hmm. you're not here. So, uh, <laughs> so um, I would love to. I do have one little teeny last little bit that I was just going to say. Like this in the in the world this week, a big news thing was that Kobe Bryant's. Uh, a helicopter crashed on Sunday. And, um, you know, we have news outlets who are just, you know, scouring for any little bit of information uh, to share with the world about him because he was obviously a very famous basketball player. The fact that I know his name makes me know that he was a famous basketball player because I don't <laughs> watch sports. <laughs> but I not sporty. <laughs> no, I'm not. But I did know who he was, but I didn't know that he was Catholic. Me neither. That was something that was very surprising to me, and so I was happy. I was happy to read that, and I was happy to read like the the um, you know the tweets from a priest who had seen him at mass, or the the report that he and his daughter had been to mass before they got on the helicopter before it crashed. All of those things. But um, at Bellator Society, we just did a quick response, um, which I think is the appropriate response when anybody dies, and we just you know said here here is someone that everyone in the world knows. Our job is to pray for him, right? to pray for our dead because that's what we do as Catholics Um, and so I just we just offered the prayers of the church for the dying uh, for those who have just died and prayers that we pray at the graveside because it's something so natural to us you know as human beings in the first place like we we do we it's hard to imagine that those those relationships that we have in this life or those people that we know in this life are just poof gone that's it. That's all there is. We do have this sense, I think, even if we're not, you know, super faithful people, that it's not over. Like we want right. to say things. Yeah. There's more to say. There's more. There's communion there that isn't just that, that doesn't break at death. And and even the and this is something that our family practices because again my, my brother passed away three years ago that you know this month and we still you know we ask for his prayers obviously we pray for him we offer masses for him these are very important things that we do as Catholics but but we also ask for his prayers for us because we believe knowing that he you know received his last sacraments um, we we believe we hope that he died in a state of grace and we hope that he's in heaven for sure if he's not in heaven we think that he's in purgatory and even if he's in pur- purgatory, we say, you know, Jared, pray for us. And that's what we do as Catholics. And so at the end of the article that we posted on Bellator Society, we just said, Kobe Bryant, pray for us. Um, Because we we hope that he's in heaven. But even if he's in purgatory, we believe that that communion still exists. And he has a special connection. He's even closer to God than we are because he's that much, that that step closer to eternity with heaven in heaven with God. Um, But a woman online, and I don't know if she's a listener or not, um, posed the question. She said, should we be asking people in purgatory to pray for us? And it never occurred to me that that was even a question. Have you guys, have you guys ever heard that as like a, as a controversy in the church that whether or not we should pray for people, I mean, whether or not we should ask, ask people who we think might be in purgatory to pray for us? Well, there's a book called Get Us Out of Here. I don't know if y'all ever read that. And it's like Hungry Souls. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's the the reason why they say they're longer than they should is because that people quit praying for them. Mm-hmm. 
So. Well, and we know we know that we should pray for them, but then is it, it the, her question was specifically, should we be asking them to pray for us? Mm-hmm. Do they have the capacity to pray for us? And that's where I was like, I, I never really considered that that wasn't an option. I never <laughs> considered it wasn't an option either. So I, it's never been something I've thought about. But to that point, um, you know, to that point, like we, we don't know who's in purgatory and who's in heaven. So anybody that's died that we believe is in a state of grace or in communion with the church or a believer, at the very least a believer in Jesus Christ, like we, yes, we pray for them, but asking for their prayers, why would it be bad? I can't hurt. (laughs) Absolutely. I had one person who her friend shared with me that her, the biggest thing that she wasn't Catholic, the biggest thing that she struggles with is um, not being able to see her child again. Mm-hmm. And I was so um, I was so hurt by that because that would just seem so hopeless. Like I'll never see my child again. And I told my, I went to my priest with this and um, he said, no, absolutely. Like we will see our children again. And, you know, like now, I, like without a doubt, I believe that they are praying our way to heaven mm-hmm. regardless yeah regardless of if they're in purgatory or if they're they're in heaven, they want us to be with God. They want to be with God and they want us to be with God. And I just think that God is too good not to allow that to happen. I think you're right. And and so I immediately, because I'm a researcher, I immediately was like, where can I find a catechetical teaching that tells me what I should be praying for, who I I should be asking (laughs) prayers from? And the only thing that I could really find in the catechism was paragraph uh, 958. And this is my last little bit. This is it. Um, It's it's the statement um, that the catechism makes on communion with the dead. And it says, in full consciousness of this communion of the whole mystical body of Jesus Christ, the church and its pilgrim members, from the very earliest days of Christian religion, has honored with great respect the memory of the dead. And because it is holy and a wholesome thought to pray for the dead, that they may be loosed from their sins, she offers her suffrages for them. This was the part that I think answers the question. Our prayer for them is capable not only of helping them, but also of making their intercession for us effective. If they're interceding for us and it's effective, guess what? They're praying for us. They Regardless if they're us. in purgatory or heaven, if, they're in, if they are interceding, if they are like Christ who, who sits with the Father always making intercession, if they are that much closer incorporated into the body of Christ, of course they're praying for us. So I think that's the answer to the question. Yeah, and I'll be right. Pray for us. Yeah. So, Kelly, um, I don't know if you have a last little bit prepared. I do, actually. So, there's, well, I have two things. I'm doing what Tracy's doing. So, first thing. (laughs) Welcome to the club. (laughs) So, the first thing I just want to share with everyone is that my memoir will be coming out in 2020, and it's uh, called Hiding in the Upper Room. So, yes, Fran. I was hiding (laughs) in the upper room uh, and Jesus entered uh, and showed his wounds and it invited me to share mine. So that's Mm. the story with the the name. Um, And it's uh, the subtitle is um, How the Sacraments Healed uh, a Grieving Mother. Mm. Um, So that's my first thing. It'll be available this year and um, I am self-publishing it. So it'll be available on Facebook and on uh, my website 
And then my second thing is, which I think this is probably the biggest exciting news for the church, is that we have developed um, this grief program that is um, going to be able to reach um, the entire church. Um, It's a course production that is going to be done um, online, and so we'll have a platform that um, people will be able to access um, this, like a workbook um, style with a video. So there's 10 sessions that people will be able to to go on and it'll be able to, they'll be able to access whatever type of grief loss that they have. So our first track will be for parents of loss. Um, They can do it as an individual or as a couple. And um, they'll also, it's going to be a data site. So they'll be able to put in their zip code and they'll be able to find like church parishes um, that offer grief support, Catholic grief counselors, and also spiritual directors. So that's what and because I know that none of this is free, uh, how can people help if they want to help? Because again, we need to get this in every diocese. We need to get this ministry, just as you said, it doesn't exist um, no. in, in, a, in an organized way, at least. I mean, I'm sure we have priests who are brilliant at, at walking with people through grief, um, but we need this ministry in the church and we need to get it into as many dioceses and parishes as we can. And so that costs something. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I think that there will be people who will want to make donations. How can we do that? How can we, how can we plug in? How can we go all in for Redbird? Yeah. So Everything is pretty much, besides the platform, is developed, and the obstacle, of course, is the financing. Mm -hmm. Um, Because of the type of platform that we need, it's very, very expensive, along with the 10 different videos. So to be able to help us, um, of course, pray for us. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to make a donation, financial donation, you can make it on our website, which is uh, redbird.love, and then slash donate. Mm -hmm. Thank and you. we'll have that on our show notes so Absolutely. for all those who, who want to d- donate and get involved and learn more about you. We'll have your website in the show notes. And we are just so honored to know you. And we you're in our prayers, and we'll be praying for your ministry and, and just all the ways that the Lord's going to use you and your husband and your family really for, I think, generations. So it's thank so you. so beautiful. And we're going to close thank out this you. podcast with a special song that was written. Um, Kelly, can you give us a little introduction? Yeah, so my friend Misty that lost Isley, um, which I always say that Isley was the first step of my conversion, um, we named the ministry Red Bird because um, Misty, the mother's um, first cousins, wrote a song. And there's five people that are named on the song. The first is a cousin. Second one is Isley. Um, third is their dad who died of cancer. And then the fourth and fifth, or the um, the Lafayette Theater shooting, the girls, and it's called Redbird Flies. Oh, thank you, thank you, Kelly, thank you. Doctors called it a perfect storm. A week later she was gone Oh, how they cried And I think of you when the cardinal flies A country concert at the Cajun Dome 
A mother-daughter date They were headed home A drunk driver Took her sweet young life And I think of her When the cardinal flies Fly high And sing a song Fly Cardinal 